Street Smart Mental Health Podcast, coming to you as always from the Lou Fuse Automotive Group Studio. My name is Michael Wellington, and I'm across the table from my tag team partner, as usual, the one and only Natty King, Brandon McMe. How are you today? I'm good. You seem good. <laughs> yeah, how are you doing? I'm good. You got coffee today. Yeah, I don't usually drink coffee, as I was telling you, but I'm going to give it a try. You, uh, you're driving to out today. I'm leaving town today. I'm, I'm kind of excited to see how this coffee hits you during this hour. Oh, fuck. I'm not going to lie. What we need. Where, are you, where are you driving to? Table Rock. Oh, that's not bad. Family vacay down in, in oh, Table Rock. For you. We have two guests today. We have two guests. Uh, we have Tim Trifoletti. Hey, oh. Nailed it. Thanks for coming in, Tim. You're very welcome. I just wanted to contribute the triple chocolate coffee. You're yes. welcome. Very you pleased. Can go, you can go yeah. now. That's hey, all we need. Trailblazer. You. All right. S- somebody needed to figure out that machine. <laughs> and we have Eric Conley. Hello, guys. Thank hey. you for having me. Thanks for being here. Absolutely. Eric, we're fired up to have you here today. We, we believe that your story is going to help many, as it probably already has. But tell our listeners what your job title is. Like, if, if we had your business card out, what would, what would it say on it? I am the chief executive officer of Illinois. Illinois Recovery Center. And uh, what is Illinois Recovery Center? It's a new inpatient detox residential facility in Swansea, Illinois. Beautiful, man. I've been to the facility. It is phenomenal. I've been to a number of treatment facilities in my time. Big fan of yours. It has kind of a college oh, campus. Yeah, I went and checked it out. Oh, no shit. Uh, it has kind of a college campus type feel. They've got a full gymnasium, full basketball court. Oh, uh, man, I mean, that's awesome. The living quarters are spectacular. When we well. had, when we, but when my brother was alive, he passed from, my brother passed, sorry, throw that out. My brother passed from fentanyl overdose oh, uh, in wow. 2018. It, when we took him like to other facilities, they were like, fucking it's like a hospital like it was yeah. it was almost yeah. like a like a county jail right like they had a cafeteria and they had some rooms and that was that so that's yeah, cool that's, you got that's kind of the interpretation too when mm-hmm. when people talk about it's like no wonder rehabilitation people don't want to go there. center yeah the hospital type setting that's what we worked hard at illinois recovery center to get rid of that's right? awesome now, now, was that built from the ground up, or was that no, something it you was, guys renovated it? Um, I think in the 70s, 76, to be exact, I think it was inpatient, special needs, mm-hmm. long-term facility. It was there for state-funded program for all the way up until 2019, and they shut down. So when we got uh, to see the campus, like Mike says, we've been calling it that, it needed a lot of work. Campus, I like that name for it. Well, yeah, and the work that you've done that I saw, whether it's the living areas or the bedrooms, I mean, it honestly felt like a modern-style hotel. You know, all the bedding was new and fresh, <laughs> the, the flat-screen televisions, the the furniture, it just... I mean, I kind of wanted to hang out there yeah. when, when yeah, I came Yeah, no, it's, it's pretty good. My sister, Jennifer Conley, she... Uh, she has a way of decorating, putting things together, the color schemes. So it was kind of her vision on how she wanted it to lay out and the modern look to it. So we went as far as we put up drywall on some of the walls just to get away from some of the concrete oh, uh, yeah. the facility institution. Yeah. Feel. Um, put carpet in in the rooms. They're semi-private rooms. So and even laid down vinyl flooring to get rid of that old VC tile yeah. that you'll see in like elementary schools or hospital settings which like that's got to make Brandon. that's got to make somebody it, it feels more inviting i have to assume to where as you yeah. to yeah. your point if it's institutionalized you're going to want to get out of there sooner than later because you feel like you're in a quote hospital yep. or a jail or something like exactly that. absolutely you hear that 
a lot of people say that, you know, it's, it's rehab is supposed to be similar to, you know, it's supposed to be comparable to a secure, safe, cozy environment. Not, not like uh, you're in trouble. Yeah. Right, it's not jail. It's not, not punishment. Right. Correct. Right. Correct. So Eric, you're in this space now professionally. A lot of people, I think, uh, that, that get into your position, there, there's a, a deeper meaning and a deeper reason. Tell our listeners uh, a little bit about your story and how it came to be that you wound up doing this professionally. Sure. Dating back probably somewhere in early high school, grade school, playing sports, play baseball and basketball. I had an injury and, uh, you know, I can't pinpoint the exact time, but I was introduced to painkillers. So right around that time was my mom was sick with, with breast cancer and having the hindsight now, I look back as the painkillers, while it served its purpose for the pain, it also served a bigger purpose for me. Underlying pain, the mental, you know, whether it was depression, anxiety, you know, some trauma or grief, what have you. But the painkillers, when I took them, they allowed me to have that feeling inside where it was like, man, I it, that euphoria. I was like, I have arrived, right? Always had friends and would go out and such forth. But, you know, taking something, whether it's a couple drinks of alcohol couple shots, a couple beers, and then a couple Vicodin. That's really when it started and, and allowed me to feel comfortable in my own skin. I didn't hear this till later on years down the road, but you know, it's, it's that feeling of when you walk into a room, you're friends with everybody in there, but you feel like you're isolated or alone. So you can't be yourself, not comfortable in your own skin. And the, the painkillers allowed me to, to feel comfortable. Taking those when I was younger, it started out with just innocent fun, going out, partying and such forth. But then slowly through high school, it became more and more of a, of a usage. It wasn't just every Friday night or Saturday night. It became, you know, through once I got through high school and into college, it became every, every other day and then turned to every day. And that was when my mom got sick for the second time. So once again, I used the painkillers as a way of giving off this tough guy persona, right? I'm not supposed to be upset. I'm not supposed to be depressed. You know, you're supposed to be a young man. You pull your bootstraps up put your mouthpiece in, life hits hard, and handle your business. But uh, the painkillers allowed me to mask that and uh, not really deal with underlying issues like depression or uh, anything else that you know accommodates that. Was Vicodin your favorite? Was that the one you used the most? Vicodin was the favorite, man. <laughs> and it's okay. You know, don't want to get up here and tell war stories, but Vicodin was something where I heard an example of somebody, I think it might have been like Russell Brand or something, famous celebrity. And he gave an analogy that I, I'm not going to try to quote. He made it uh, similar to when you're a baby and you're swaddled, that warm, fuzzy, comfortable, secure feeling. And he nailed it in my perspective on what that was. And I think, you know, when you're comfortable in your recovery, it's okay to talk about what led you there and how it made you feel. Obviously, we all see the what it does and how it adversely affects so many countless millions of lives. But yeah, he, he did a comparison when he said that. He, he nailed it for sure. And he's done everything from what I've heard. Oh, so, yeah. 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 Wow. Where next? Bring us down that timeline. After uh, we got done with college, I was working for Frito-Lay for about 10 years. It got to the point when my mom passed away, yes, my supply dried up. You know, her painkillers weren't there. She didn't have her prescriptions there for me to, they weren't readily available. It was, I remember, unfortunately, I remember being at her funeral and on that day, because my mom, my dad, my two sisters, they're, they're, we are tight knit. But I remember on that day having the fleeting thoughts of, oh, my God, what am I going to do now? 
right? Had a couple bucks saved up, you know, I was pretty good with money and young man didn't have a lot of bills, made pretty good money with Frito-Lay. And I think I had like $12,000 saved up and it was gone in six months. <laughs> Shit. Once again, that's when the graduation process from Vicodin and Percocet and Oxycontin, it graduated to heroin mm-hmm. because now for $20, you can feel the same way as what $100 of Oxycontin made you feel. So is that the thought process? So for so long you were on the pills, right? Mm-hmm. And you were able to get them for free from your mom. Then <laughs> she passes on. So like you said, your supply goes away. So you're now chasing the feeling, but you need to chase it cheaper. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. Okay, so, I guess I never thought about that. Yeah. Or, so it was money. It wasn't like you needed something stronger. Nope. It was just, this is fucking cheaper. Yeah, absolutely. It was, uh, yeah. you know, the ironic too is I got a business degree, right? I put it to good use. It was like, hey, listen, let me get something that's cheaper, more bang for your buck per se. And heroin, there was a mass influx. Many people were graduating to that for that same reason. Like I said, $20 could make it stretch what $100 would do for Oxycontin. So I always say it this way. It was, it was really just a business decision. I'm scared of needles. I never had any vision of shooting dope intravenously. You know, I don't want to get too graphic here. But even the first time I did that, I would put neosporm and alcohol wipes. And usually when you get to that point, you're not really too concerned. Right. But I was concerned. It was just simply put, it was a business decision. So, at the, sorry, no, were, go you, ahead. were you at this point addicted or were you just doing it to feel better about something? No. Or was this, it a crutch? Yeah, at this point, I was addicted. Okay, so you're, you're fucking, I need this. Yep. I got to get yep. this. And then, heroin, first time you do it, are you thinking, like, this is worth the possibility I'm going to die from this? Like, yeah, is it, so that's the interesting thing is you're. You, I think we all, I think it's a safe assumption that even though we know, like, that's a powerful word, heroin. Mm-hmm. I mean, even when you say it, it'd captivate an audience. But you don't have that thought. You, you have the thought of that happens in Hollywood. That happens to other people. It doesn't happen to me. But like you said, Brandon, it, it, it I mean, it's it, worth the risk. Absolutely. You're yeah. like, hey, I'm fucking, I don't, if, if it kills me, it kills me. So like, here's the interesting thing insane. as well. That's powerful shit. Is if you don't have it, you really do believe you're going to die. You know, you're you're tired but can't sleep, hungry, can't eat. You have cold sweats, flu-like symptoms, restless legs. I've had restless legs so, so bad in the middle of the night, passed out, went to, went to sleep, and woke up in the middle of the night, and the, the high is gone, the euphoria is gone, to where I've, I've grabbed a pistol and chambered around and had a thought wow. of if I could shoot myself in the leg, Somehow that will be okay because I'll go to the hospital, I'll get painkillers, and I can get some sleep. They'll knock me out. And you're thinking that might be the best route. Correct. You're you're selling yourself on that idea, and you're already like, you got about that. That is not an embellished story. That's a real thought process at that current time. What was the What was the time frame of when your oxy, when Mm -hmm. when all that, when that kind of dried up to where you transitioned Mm -hmm. over to heroin? Was it a couple day thing? Was it a couple weeks? So it started out, you know, when I when I first tried heroin for the first time. I mean, it was full effect. It was rubber gloves, alcohol wipes. And, right. and did it that way. But from the time my mom passed away and that hopeless feeling, like life, what's what's worth living, you know, one of those feelings, it graduated into then, I guess you would say the courage 
or the unfortunate circumstances to try heroin. So mm-hmm. I bet within those two, you know, my mom passing and actually trying it, I bet it was probably a month. With no oxy or anything in between. Well, I was still using oxy. You were still, but you were yeah. running out and Correct. made the determination this is going to be the cheaper yeah. route to yeah. go, right? Because you never want to run out, right? That's what keeps you going. That's why you hear people do stuff that's, you know, it's scary. It's heartbreaking because, you know, if you don't have that in your system, you're sick. You feel like you are going to die. And for most of us at that point, you know, we have those thoughts of it would be easier if that did happen. When you were in your deepest grips of it, was there a routine that you would do? Like you said you woke up in the middle of the night and you thought about shooting your leg. Was your routine like, okay, wake up, do the heroin and then you know, go about your day, then do the heroin again at night or just once a day. Like, I'm just curious like how that, what that looks like. Yeah. So that's exactly what it is, Mike. You, you wake really? up it's and before you, yeah, yeah. Before you get out of bed, that's where you're going first. So before you, you brush your teeth, before you brush your teeth, before you shower, before wow. you get dressed, oh, I mean, shit. it is rolling out of bed and you're going straight for the heroin, for mm-hmm. dope or painkillers. And and let's back up just a minute too. Before you go to sleep the night before, if you don't have something to wake up to, it is utter chaos like mentally inside. You will not sleep. You will be frantic. You're having like panic attacks because you know the morning comes fast, and when it comes and you don't have anything, you'll feel deathly sick. Was there something that you had to take to help you sleep? No, no, it was, it, it, well, painkillers okay. to some form, but to show you how your, you know, your body's an immaculate machine, $20 of heroin would initially would, would work, wound up leading to, you know, a gram of heroin a day. And if you didn't have a gram of heroin, by the end of the day, you're still starting to go into precipitated withdrawals. Okay. So now I got a million <laughs> questions. So as you're in the grips of this, you're fully addicted, you're doing this first thing when you wake up, maybe again, another time during the day, like, are you working? Like, what are you doing yeah. in the real world? Like, are, are you, yeah, right. exactly. Are you functioning? So, so I know it wow. sounds funny, but I was a functioning heroin addict. Wow. That right, is off the, right off the bat. Right off the bat. So I you, never, you're uh, Frito-Lay, like talk, like yep. right now having a conversation with people and you're high as fuck and you just all good. Yep. Amazing. Yep. So I had to do that and I knew that was my lifeline per se, because I needed money. My dad, once again, my best friend, but Mama didn't raise no fool, so he he knows, you know, I'm probably making $50,000 a year. I'm 23 years of age. I don't have a house payment, a car payment, nothing, and I don't have a pot to piss in. Right. So if I'm coming to him Thursday asking him about 100 bucks till payday right. Friday, he's got some questions. Um, and did by he that piece t- it together? Oh, I mean, yeah. He did? Oh, yeah. Yeah. When the cat got out of the bag, per se, you know, my sisters were telling him, Angie and Jennifer were kind of telling him, Dad, something's not right. Something's not right. You know, and I stopped playing basketball. I stopped playing baseball. I stopped working out. So all How the hobbies 20, are going. 20s, 23. Kind of normal yeah. at yeah. that age, though, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, yeah. jobs kicking in and so, all that. And keep in mind, my mom passed away. So my dad's probably somewhere along the lines. And my sister's, well, really, my dad's probably wondering, like, is he depressed? What's going on? Right. Does he need Naturally. to talk to somebody? Yeah. So there was a sense of denial there. But to go back to operational and the work in, roll out of bed, there'd be times, you know, if I started running a route at 3 a.m., I'd have to go down to North St. Louis at 2 a.m. before I went into work, run a route for eight hours, and then after work at, let's say, 11, 
12 during the day, afternoon, have to go back to North St. Louis before I came home. Well, let's talk about that for a second, uh, yeah. because I think we all know that North St. Louis is not really a place you want to hang out. Now, are Absolutely. you is that where Frito-Lay was, or that's where you were buying your no, shit? No, that's where Eric was. Yeah, okay. Frito-Lay wasn't there. That's where I was going to, you know. Now, did you ever run into situations in that environment where maybe somebody tried to kill you? No. I mean, so I, I want to make sure I convey this appropriately, but when we're in active addiction, we're not worried about that. And there's a state of hopelessness that I had to where, obviously, uh, you know, the times I would carry a pistol on me, I'm not licensed or permitted to have it. And, uh, you know, riding concealed weapon, of course. Right. Um, but sometimes you just go to that mindset mindset for, you know, I'm going into North St. Louis at 2 a.m., pistol my. under my, my seat, and it's all for $20 worth of heroin. Right. So incredible. It, it's it's so, baffling. So the thought is there, but at that point, you just you don't care. The yeah. risk need is yeah. worth the reward. And I always say this too: is it still to this day? It's just so unfortunate because countless individuals are feeling this thought. But you're at a point in your life where you can't live with it. You can't live without it. So you, you stop looking both ways when you cross the street, mm-hmm. right? So you, it, it's almost welcomed. When people say they have suicidal ideations or homicidal ideations, that's, you know, it's not normal, but it is normal in the current state that you're in at that point in time. It's the people that don't mention that, that also feel that way is when that's, uh, you know, that's escalated to another category. We have covered so much here. Let's take a quick break and come right back. Looking for a dealership who cares about our community? Look to Lou. Lou Fuse gives back to local businesses and charities. Looking for a name that supports youth sports? Look to Lou for Fuse Athletic. And we're the official automotive sponsor of St. Louis City SC. Looking for a huge vehicle inventory? Look to Lou with 17 brands at 13 locations. For the very best car buying experience, you've got to look to Lou Fuse. The Street Smart Mental Health Podcast is powered by Birdies for Bipolar. Birdies for Bipolar aids veterans and civilians living with mental illness by using golf as recreational therapy. For more information, check out birdiesforbipolar.org. That's birdies, the number four, bipolar.org. Welcome back to Street Smart. Let's dig back in. Are you at any point during the, you know, like, you're obviously deep in this shit right here. Are you feeling like, how are you feeling about your yourself? Like, are you like, just, I fucking hate that I did this ever first time. I hate that I do this. Or what yeah. do you have? Are you even thinking about that? Are you numb? Because I, I. Yeah, you're yeah. numb. So heroin is like the I don't care drug. You know, it's kind of like when you're high. I don't care. It'll all be okay. As in, I'm going to live, as, not well, like I need if, to get off this yeah, train, yeah. but I'm going to live. It's all good. Yeah. So it's kind of just like, you know, whatever happens, it'll be okay. You know, there could be a nuclear explosion, you know, and as long as you're high on heroin, it's kind of like, yeah, That's we'll figure it out. Crazy. So it's, it's the I don't care type drug. And how I was feeling at that point in time was I didn't, I didn't want to be addicted to anything. Like I was screaming internally. I don't know if I was saying it externally. I don't know if I was telling people this, but uh, a good buddy of mine, his name is uh, Kyle. I, I crashed my car into an embankment as an attempt to commit suicide. Jesus. 
And he called me and he said, hey, man, you know, you okay? And I said, yeah. He was like, well, what happened? I said, man, you know, he was the first person I told where I was just over it and told him I tried to commit suicide to off myself, per se. And he said, man, it's, it's that bad? And I told him, you know, I, I kind of like paused for a second. And I said, of course it is. It's not that bad for you. And that scenario shows you the difference timelines because he was struggling with heroin as well at the same time. That was my best friend, still is my best friend. So we were just at two different timelines, points on the timeline of where where we were at, you know, mentally. So you were a little deeper into it than he yeah. was. So yeah. you both knew that you guys were both active. Absolutely. Was he yeah. the only other person that knew or? Um, no, it was by that time too when heroin took over, that's when everybody kind of stopped and looked and said something's not right. Right. Because like I said, all, all hobbies, no hunting, no fishing, no working out, visually, no playing ball. Visually, I'm assuming too. Yeah, you visually, I think, um, I think I got down to like 135, 140 pounds. Oh. Wow. So you're emaciated, you know, and um, there's just physical, you know, obviously physical characteristics that, you know, are now present. Uh, long sleeves, right? So right. I, it could be hot outside and I'm wearing long sleeve shirts. I don't want you guys to see mark on my arm or anything sure. like sure. that. You start moving to the toes and shit and yep. all that stuff. Yep. Yep. Wow. Yeah. So how long did this routine, if you will, last? You know, you're 23 working at Frito-Lay. But you got this big, I mean, it's kind of a secret, but people are starting to figure it out. How long did this go on before, like, somebody pulled the curtain back? Yeah, so it was, I always used the heroin when I graduated to heroin as around 23. And then I think I was about 20, almost 26 wow. when I got help. One of my good friends got me down to Florida in a treatment center. So three full years of, like, serious grind with this. Yeah. And how many times in those three years did you go to North St. Louis? Oh, um, twice a day. Whoa, every day. Wow. So you think about that's what in recovery, right? You think about it's exhausting sitting here thinking about, think about the amount it, yeah. of energy yeah. twice a day, the amount of money, gas. I mean, the you know, it still is North St. Louis, so you yeah. know where you're going. Yeah. You're going in, you gotta be on your P's and Q's, but at the same time having the the feeling of if something were to take place, that's okay. You're almost welcoming it at Correct. that point. Correct. And and when I struggle too, I once again, it goes back to why I used. I'm a tough guy at heart, right? I think you should. I always say tough guy at heart, so you do all those charades on to make you that. But really, it's just because you're scared of everything, mm -hmm. right? So you're going to North St. Louis prepared for something and thinking like, hey, no one's going to touch me. But, you know, secretly you're welcoming it. Man, how lead us down how what when was it like fuck this i'm done with it like did you you said your buddy took you down to florida yep so open to that at all or were you just like did yeah. he make you make you go like no a that's, a, that's a good question my after i crashed my car got out of the hospital it was about a week later my oldest sister angie she pulled me aside and said hey you know you need to get some help and her and my other sister jennifer called a a good friend my buddy's nick boatman had a treatment center in South Florida. They brought it up to me and wanted me to speak to Nick because there was a couple years, you know, he was he was getting better and I wasn't. So a couple years we didn't speak. This was this was Nick, the guy. That's yeah. Nick is my my good buddy that owns a treatment center. Was in he Florida. Your, the buddy you were talking about earlier that no, he wrecked the car? Okay. No, no. But we all knew each sure. other. Yeah. What are the odds of that? Your buddy owns a treatment center. It, exactly. How did you get that? Awesome. Yeah. That was a, a god moment, and right. I did not know that. Oh, you so, had no idea. No, but he no. was he was an addict, an addict as well. Correct. Yep. 
Okay, yep. got it. So okay. he was kind of the first to get help and then go and and became successful and and got back, you know, gave back by acquiring a treatment center and and I was one of the first ones that he had the privilege to help in of his previous friends. So my sisters wanted me to speak with him and when he called me, I was oh man, I I was submitting. I, I just tell me what to do. I'll go stand on my head if I have to. You were fucking over. This is right after the hospital. With, yeah. Okay. So yep. you're you're already at the yeah. I was wits I was completely done. Couldn't live with it. Couldn't live without it. Didn't want to lose my family. It's the most important thing to me. I had one rebuttal to him because I was worried about my job. He said, Eric, you know how how are you feeling? And he asked me that, and then I just broke down and was like, man, nobody's asked me that. And everybody keeps telling me what I should do, but no one's asked me how are you doing. And rightfully so, right? Because everybody's trying to live your life for you because I'm in no state to make those decisions. So completely understand. But he asked that question and said he had a had a treatment center, had an opportunity for me, had a plane ticket already booked oh, for the wow. next day. It's a friend. And I had one rebuttal because my heart was pure. I said, man, I've been with Frito-Lay for 10 years. I can't lose my job, right? And he said, Eric, you're shooting heroin intravenously. You're... You're going to lose your job. So, and that's all it took. Right. So the irony with that, that was June 12th, 2014. Nine years later, June 12th, 2023, I'm the CEO of Illinois Recovery Center. Hmm. Fuck yeah. That's another God moment. Totally amazing. I mean, so (laughs) let me ask you the standard treatment questions, right? Did you go for 30 days, 60 days, 90 days? And when you got out... What was that like, and did you have the urge? Sure, sure. When I went to treatment the first time, because there's been a multiple multiple times, the first time I went for 56 days, and then I got out, and Sorry, then I, I went in that outpatient. 56. Is there a set day with that? This was set up. I always wondered that, too. I don't know why it was specific to 56 days. I think it's more so designed around the 60-day program okay. from where I went. But logistically, sure, maybe sure. they had transportation. Got out four I, days early for good behavior. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. I didn't know if it was a day-by-day type thing until they finally are just like, you're good. Or if you started a certain program that was built around a certain amount of time. I, sure, sure. But, okay, sorry to interrupt. I didn't no, that's okay. Just, I um, never but I went in aftercare. I intensive outpatient after I did inpatient. So I went to detox inpatient for 56 days and then went to outpatient for, I think it was about three months. Okay. And um, did you stay in Florida? Yep. Okay. Yep. Because so, I, I know, you know, I go down to Florida quite a bit and a lot of people, some people will stay and do that afterwards, but other people will come back to their hometowns. I was curious, you know. Sure. Actually, I went in sober living where there's rules and, you know, accountability. And still to this day, I think it's the most important thing for someone's recovery is, you know, they say change one thing, that's everything. So uh, inpatient's nice and easy. You're in a controlled environment. You know, I hate to be this blunt, but if you can't make it an inpatient, then you got no business enrolling an outpatient, right? Because right? more liberty, more freedom to, to make your own decisions. Hence why aftercare is designed to follow, you know, an inpatient setting. So I think a lot of people, and and I know we're going to have a lot of listeners that struggle with this, this addiction. I think that one of their biggest things is the fear of that detox. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, They're like that, put it off, put it off, put it off because that's, it's terrifying because you hear all the shit about it. Yeah. So how does the, how does the the detox, how does that work? How does that, what's that process look like? Sure. And how were you feeling when you went through it? Sure. So detox for me was, I mean, there's, there's some humor here, a little bit of dark humor, but you're, 
with a medically managed detox, you're usually under the influence while you're in detox. Right. So detox, while it's scary, I think it's they individuals. Give, they give you certain stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So for opiates, for example, they'll, they'll give you uh, like Suboxone right. or buprenorphine. Mm-hmm. And that softens the, the withdrawal effect. So, you're, you know, you're not so. It's not cold turkey. Not a cold yeah. turkey, just. Have yeah. you seen that movie with the, the Johnny Cash movie? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, where uh, Joaquin Phoenix is detoxing in that farmhouse or whatever. It's fucking Great movie. just. Yeah. Oh, and I think that's what a lot of people just think is that's what we got to do to get through this. Sure. Just sure. tie me to a post. And I mean, that's pretty much what week. they did with it. Yeah. Dude. And that's the benefit, too, when you have, you know, our, our medical director at Illinois Recovery Center, Dr. Jazz, is phenomenal. You know, he's an addiction specialist. He is phenomenal. I know him. Yeah, Mike, we talked cool about that. Too. He's Dr. Jazz. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. This dude is cool. Yeah, he, he, like he is name. very good. <laughs> country music. Dr. Jazz. Yeah. <laughs> he's very good at what he does. And, and he has a heart, and he's all in it. So there's awesome. a taper with... You know, suboxone or buprenorphine, and, and this um, is the doctor at your place. Yeah, okay, yeah, cool. that's our medical director. Yeah, it, it's it's not as bad as you would think. You right. know, now it's circumstantial. Don't get me wrong. There's some individuals that are going to feel it more than others. But like I said, for me, I was using a gram of heroin a day, and when I went through detox, it was not gram of heroin a day is quite a bit of heroin, but it was not that bad because of the taper and, and the comfort medication. So sleep medication how, and such forth. How was your family during all this? Probably elated. Yeah. I think they were getting some sound sleep when I was in somewhere. Yeah. You know? I remember that's for sure, dude. <laughs> yeah. That's for sure. When Nick, my brother, Nick was in prison, even mm-hmm. when I mean, we we're just like, how long is he going away for? Okay, cool. They get to take mm-hmm. a break. Right. He'll be safe. Yeah. But when, it turns when out, you and I first met in there too. Yeah. First time we met it, the mm-hmm. day he got out. Yeah. Yeah. And you kept checking your and tech. He, I was like, dude, if you want to bounce, and, and then, then he went into it. And I he was passed like, away six days later. Yeah, man. Just, oh, wow. He got out. He was out for six days. He was in the healthiest, best shape of his life. Looked great. And then found him. How long was was he in a? He was in a program for how long? He was in jail. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. And so he was in. He went in several programs, Bridgeway and shit, for years from when he was in high school till he died at twenty seven. He was in prison three times, I think, for a couple of years at a time. By the time he's 27, he had done like six years in jail. Yeah. Like, yeah. And then he gets out and he's like, he was in great shape. Mm-hmm. He'd been down for about two years, I think. I, my mom's going to listen to this and be like, what the fuck are you talking about? You're way wrong with all these timelines. But <laughs> but you get the point. And then, yeah, six days later, found him on his own. Uh, and you, and you hear about that quite a bit. And that's terrible. That's, all, mm-hmm. that's heartbreaking. But individuals, you know, even checking into a program and then they... They yeah. get out and their their tolerance subsided and exactly you know you kind of I don't want to say you pick up where you left off. They think but, that they but, can handle the yeah. same shit that they were going away with. But yeah. your situation, you could have left whenever you wanted to. Correct. correct? So you yep. chose to stay there. So when you got out of your your friend's treatment facility and you were transitioning into the outpatient, yep. I guess right sober living, yeah. Was there any nerves with that, or are you look? I'm I'm good. I've got this. I'm clean. You yeah. Know? So I was probably the most frightened I've ever been in my life, and and that's saying when something. you got out, when like, I well, got out, day. rightfully yeah. so. You're the most vulnerable. Yeah, absolutely. I would think. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm in a. It's the first time I left home. Right. I'm I'm in South Florida. I'm with a bunch of people that let's just be honest. I, I'm casting judgment, so I don't trust you guys. Right. And same thing. They're not trusting me. And we're we're living all together amongst each other. 
you know, I got no family or friends or anything around. So vulnerable is an excellent word to describe it. I was scared shitless. I, it was, what am I to do, right? No right. job, no money. Well, that's what I was curious. Did they not set you up with a job when you're doing sober living? They they didn't. They didn't. It was very important for them, to me, for me and other clients to attend outpatient. And then once you started attending, then it was kind of like, you know, word spread and case managers would help you with jobs and such forth. But the first two weeks I didn't have a job. And then and then it turns kind of yeah. in, it turned into kind of like a vacation. So I was going to the beach every day. <laughs> so then when you start seeing people, my right. good friend Nick would see me is like, damn, me, your, your tan looks incredible. You got a job yet? You know, right. <laughs> So now you got to be careful with that of like, you know, I'm down here not to vacay, not to yeah. get a nice bronze tan. You know, it ain't Jim Tan Laundry over right. here. So <laughs> it's it's time to, to put in work. And that's where that's really where the real work starts is that on the outpatient. Yeah. You know what? I'm glad you brought that up because it, it is work, right? Like I've had all these weird things happen to me because of bipolar disorder, right? And mm -hmm. it just it took serious work to get everything in, in the order, in the right order. You do the 56 days, you do three months of sober living. Then what happens? Do you come home? Do you stay there? So on my first time, it I think I got to almost nine months clean and sober after in, in total. And I think it was the eight month and 30 days I relapsed. Okay. And so I returned to use and it was all, you know, I tell my story like this. It was all opportunistic. So I'm not the guy that's going to go to the hood when I'm clean and sober. I'm not going to go to the hood and look for something. I'm not going to call around and search for it. I'm not going to pull a, Hey, mister, you know, out in the parking lot, the opportunity right in front of you. Yeah. Presented itself. And, uh, I was ill-equipped to say no and, and get out of the situation. So one time usage went back into treatment for two weeks. So you used it once. Just once. Yeah. And 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 I yeah, I gotta catch myself saying that because I told my same friend, Nick, when the you know, the staff and everybody, his team found out I relapsed, he called me and he said, uh, what happened? And I minimalized it and just said, yeah, Nick, I relapsed, but I only used once. <laughs> right. Right. That's what of we course. do. And he said, well, I, I get it, man. Did you, did you, how'd you do it? And I was like, oh, I, I shot it, mm -hmm. you know, intravenously. I shot it. He was like, oh yeah, man, I, I, I totally get it. You know, that's common practice. That's normal for someone to just shoot heroin once. And as long as, you know, it's not a second time, you're perfectly okay. So we, we had, he had a sense of humor with it. <laughs> And, you know, still this day, I look back on how I was trying to normalize it. Like, and he was kind of yeah. like being sarcastic. Yeah. Like, oh, oh, yeah. Oh, you yeah. just shot heroin? Oh, yeah. Whatever, dude. And I get think a cup he, of coffee. I think he even gave the example is, <laughs> yeah. what if you came home and you've seen your dad, you know, shooting heroin? And he looks at you and says, no, son, no worries. It, it was just once. Right. Right. And then That's it was like, all right, he might be on to something. Mean, yeah. <laughs> Oh, and was man. that you, you were with somebody who had it or you were? Yeah. So I think it, it, I think someone had it and I knew they had it and they, op, they gave the opportunity and it was kind of like, Hey, you want, and I couldn't say no. Right. That's how fast, even when nine months sober, I was ill-equipped to say, Nope. You're back was up there. Here. There was no feeling of remorse or I can't believe I'm doing this or I just wasted the. After I got high. All of that. Right. After I got high. But before that, butterflies in the stomach. Yeah. I was excited and, uh -huh. and and no thought of no thought of what I could be jeopardizing. So That's the sad reality of it. You're up here whenever you do that. 
right? No, I was still in Florida. Oh, you're in Florida. Florida. Yep. Florida. Okay. So you didn't come back after your three month? No. In total. So I, I, I relapsed and went back into treatment about, uh, I always, I think it was probably six times. Back and forth. Back and forth. So in total, I was in Florida for from 2014 to almost 2019. So almost five years. Yeah, the last time I went to treatment in New Jersey, which is where my good friend Nick, who had a treatment center in Florida, he sold that and bought a treatment center in New Jersey. So sounds familiar, but I didn't have insurance, and he scholarshiped me again yeah. in New Jersey. That's a good dude. So, That's a good yeah, dude. He's a very good friend. Love him very much. How for did that. they? How did they find out? Sorry to cut you. Go ahead. How did they find out? You said. He had called you and said, hey, I heard you had relapsed. How did they catch wind so of that? When you're in sober living, it word travels pretty quick, right? And when, you know, one person finds out, you know, ever they tell everybody. It's almost like, you know, the circus is in town. So right. everybody <laughs> wants to see to what's yeah. – all of a sudden, everybody forgot what someone looks like when they're high, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so that word travels pretty quickly. So where was the line in the sand drawn – in, I guess, 2019, when you were like, okay, I'm done, and I need to go do something to help other people. Let's see. My sobriety date is October 27, 2016. So I worked in treatment for the first time, you know, for the first couple of months, I was almost sober nine months. When I got to about the six-month mark, I started working in treatment. So it it would be 2016 sometime, but I had about, I guess you'd say probably about six months clean and sober. And I started answering telephones for the treatment center I attended and the first treatment center I attended. So I got on the phone one night and didn't know what the hell I was doing, but just had a great conversation with two people and they wound up coming to treatment. So that right there was, there's no better feeling, you know, right. to, to get out of my shit. It's a whole lot easier if I can help you get out of yours. And then, you know, right. and, and there's some, you know, I'm sure a clinician will will correct me, right? But it's easier for me to get out of mine if I'm helping you get out of yours, Mike. So I knew right then and there, I loved I loved the feeling. It was a euphoria. It was a rush helping someone. It made me feel good. So It also makes your experience of all the dark days invaluable to these people that need to talk to someone who's been there. Sure, sure. And I never I never sugarcoated my story. I never, you know, I, I've, I've lived a lot of life when I was in active addiction and then getting clean and sober, it has not been... You know, one shot, one attempt, and and success. I've probably made all the mistakes you can make. So when I see individuals or speak with them and they're struggling with certain things, you know, my heart bleeds for them. To answer your question, Mike, that as soon as I worked in a call center answering phones, I knew that I would I, I wanted to do this the rest of my life. So that was like the aha moment. As Absolutely. soon as you were able to kind of yep. have these conversations with people, you were like, man, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Sure. And then it always helped having one of my best friends owning a treatment center. So that gave me hope knowing that I had help if I had questions. But I never really verbalized it. But internally, I was always thinking, man, I'd love to own a treatment center. Always wanted to do that. But, you know, you, I didn't know powerful people and I don't got a lot of money. So I was like, that, the chance of that happening is yeah, but you minimal. you have the passion for it, you can make anything happen, dude. If you're, yeah. if you're passionate enough about something. And that's that brilliant. Like, it sounds like a poster. I think it's but. brilliant motivation too. Like you, you get off and now you're kind of like at the standard where mm-hmm. you're helping people and you almost subconsciously don't want to let them down by you relapsing. And you know, now you're coming across as a hypocrite. So yeah, hundred percent. So even, even doing that when, you know, I talk to clients, it's, that's the best part of my day. 
mm-hmm. you know, is when they're going through something that I might have some experience with or lived through. And then I get the opportunity to speak with them and say, hey, listen, you know, I, it, this is normal. You're supposed to feel like that. You're supposed to encounter that or, you know, it's, it's supposed to be difficult or everybody would have long-term sobriety or long-term recovery. You're at seven years? Uh, oh, October. This October will be seven years. That's amazing. Nice. God. Yeah. So when you look back at <clears throat> this whole thing, and people always say it takes a village, right? There's got to be at least one or a handful of people that helped you get to this point. Like, who are those people in your mind that jump out and, and you know that, hey, without these people, you know, I wouldn't be around? Oh, yeah. So that's, I have, there's been a lot of people along the way, but a couple names would be, you know, first and foremost, my dad and my sisters, Angie and Jennifer. You know, they never gave up on me, ever. Um, I'm sure there was times they thought about it, but um, they never gave up on me. Nick Boatman's another one, so I still to this day, he saved my life by providing an opportunity, and that's who owned the treatment center. A couple other names are Tony Gonzalez. He's a cornerstone of my recovery, and he was, for me, what I get to be for other clients. So he was a behavioral health tech in my first treatment center, and friendship formed you know, a year later, I got the privilege of being his wedding. So he was just working at the treatment center. He was just a worker bee. So that's yeah. pretty cool. I mean, the reason I asked you that is because I think when people listen to this or they're ta- they're thinking about trying to get sober or getting better, sometimes when you're not right, you don't listen to everybody that you should, right? Sure. And I think it's important for people to understand there are people in your inner circle, in your family, in your village, if you will, that you, you need to listen to. Yeah. And, and that you can actually trust. And, and I think that gets lost sometimes, you know, how important that is. Yeah. Absolutely. There's there's a couple people, too, like even the halfway house I lived at, Hugh Dove or Chris Pondoff. Bruce Hallmeyer was we my first sponsor. On. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Chris was, you know, even this last time. You know, I've always been friends with him, but he watched me spiral out and he played like a big brother role and got on the got on the wagon prior that I did. And that dude uh, was he came in here. How many Chris Pondoff, the guy he's talking about, mm-hmm. how many bottles of what was he drinking a day? I mean, for years, it was like two fifths a day. Mm. Was it whiskey? Something fucking nuts. You might know better yeah. than us. Oh, was yeah. whiskey? He was and whiskey. he his story was fantastic. That guy's. Yeah. yeah. Another guy who's been there. Just like you. Yeah. Yep. And it's you guys, man, it's. It's really impressive what you do, both of you. Yeah, it's really he's, cool. and he's, you know, he's involved with Illinois Recovery Center as well. To kind of show you, too, what addiction looks like is he was the first person I went to when I had this idea. I had a business plan, my performa, everything drawn up, drawn up, and um, I asked him to go out to eat, and that was when I was going to ask him to be involved with Illinois Recovery Center. But still, as an addict, you know, there's some deficiencies in my self-worth Right. So that's something you work on every day. And I didn't have the courage to ask him to be a part of at that so time. You just went to dinner. <laughs> just went to dinner. <laughs> Had your little binder in the yeah, yeah. put yeah. that back under the seat. So I drove home thinking like, man, my belly's full, but you know, I completely shit the bed. Yeah, like, you want to go to dinner again tomorrow? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's a big ass though, you yeah. know, like you said, with with your history and, right. and yeah, all yeah, that. No, that I get that'd be that, a yeah. that'd be a tough ask. Absolutely. So if somebody's out there listening to this And I know this isn't just a one-size-fits-all, but what would your advice be to someone, whether they're struggling with alcohol, pills, heroin, whatever, you name it, what's your advice to them to try to pull themselves out of that dark place? You just got to pick up the phone. You got to make the call. That's the hardest part in the process is just picking up the phone call and and, and calling somebody and and telling somebody you're struggling. That is single-handedly the hardest part. Second part is honoring your commitment, and that's checking into a program. 
you know, there's many different ways. And there's people that get clean and sober many different ways. I think nowadays, hence Illinois Recovery Center, you know, it's set up more like a resort. So it's not, it's not like a hospital or jail. So right. you can get clean and sober and a lot of things happen simultaneously. You get a support group. The people you're in treatment with, you become lifelong friends. I was at, in uh, last November, I was in uh, one of my buddy's weddings and I met him in treatment. So you develop those lifelong bonds. And we always tease about it is, you know, when you're sleeping in, a, in, in treatment, you got a bunch of guys in there, you're doing pillow talk. Right. So, <laughs> you you know, you become friends that way. Right. Everybody, once again, everybody's a tough guy. No one wants to admit they're scared shitless. Pillow and uh, the bond starts, man. But definitely starts with the phone call to uh, call in for help. At what point? I always think it's important when when you're coming out of something, you're coming out of a dark place like that, that you're not holding on to it like it's a stigma versus I'm coming out with it. I'm owning it. I'm going to wear it on my sleeve. This is what I've been through and all that. How how was that transition? So the only time I really struggled with like telling someone I was a heroin addict is my fiance. Right. Not her personally, her family. I have to say, I would not be here without her. She is the best part of me, and I truly mean that. So I'm a little hot-tempered and crabby in the morning. She's <laughs> rainbows and sunshine and skipping through right. the house. So the time when I struggled with telling someone I was a heroin addict was the the time I met her parents. Yeah, I did it from the perspective of you got a young, beautiful gal. She's down in Florida. I met her, and now she's probably telling her family she's in love with a guy, and now I got to be the guy that shakes her father's hand and speaks to her mother and her brothers and say, yeah, hi, my name is Eric. I'm a heroin addict. So I got two sisters, and I can only imagine if someone came to the house and shook yeah. my hand telling me that, you know, they're in love with my sister. Now I feel completely different, right? But back then, early recovery and just getting going, I was petrified. That's a ballsy, that you know, that's a ballsy move Absolutely. right there, you yeah. know, because theoretically, I mean, how are they, odds of them finding out if you play your cards right, they may not find out, but you being sure. transparent with them, you it, know. It allowed me, when I spoke with them and was honest with them, it allowed me to kind of, I don't want to say educate, but kind of inform them on, you know, I'm, I'm a regular guy, right? Because right? I don't think I fit the description of, you know, the guy, you know, that's overgrown beard and struggling under the bridge. Right. And, you know, that stereotype we get, like, that's not only, it could be, but that's not what heroin addicts look like. Well, and right? I've been to South Florida. My mom lived down there and it's like zombies on every street corner. <laughs> so they could yeah. affiliate and you're like, no, nah, yep. it's, yeah, wasn't that guy. Yeah. But that was the only time I struggled. But, you know, admitting to someone that I was a heroin addict. I'm pretty transparent with my story, yeah. wear my heart on my sleeve. And, and like I said, it, Molly is my fiance, Molly Sanborn. She, she's allowed that, you know, even when I further met the rest of her family, you know, she would always kind of introduce and, and kind of stack the deck to allow me the opportunity when they're asking about myself, I could give them the full story. Cause I don't want to shake somebody's hand and be like, Hi, my name's Eric, I'm a heroin addict, and then leave it there. There's more to the story. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Gotta go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Where's the restroom? <laughs> so if somebody wants to work with you or, or learn more about Illinois Recovery Center, tell, tell our listeners how they can get in touch with you or how they can check out the facility. Yeah, so I would encourage, whether it's um, career and jobs, you know, or, or need help, visit our website, IllinoisRecoveryCenter.com. You can Google us as well. And uh, we're on Facebook what is it, Instagram, 
Yeah. So I struggled there because I did without my recovery. I didn't have any social media for 10 years. So now just getting back on. That was part of my recovery. You're not right? missing much. Yeah. 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 It's, yeah. <laughs> so getting back on, nothing's changed. But visit our website. Look at our pictures. IllinoisRecoveryCenter.com. Yeah. Yep. So I was going to say, how does somebody get involved for like volunteer work or do you even offer any? Yeah. So, like that? so on our website, we do uh, family programming on the weekends. So even I say that because we do a lot of extracurriculars as well. We'll have barbecues. We're developing an mm-hmm. alumni program. I like barbecue. Um, you know, when you're in sobriety and recovery, you want to do fun stuff. It's not gloom and right. and boring. Right. So we do fun stuff and have a full court basketball court at IRC. We're putting in our workout gym. So we're, we want everybody involved in volunteering is on through the website. We have our email address info, I-N-F-O at Illinois dot com. And they can email us whether it's resumes or, you know, if they're curious to help or bring in group or guest speaking. So that's the point of contact. Or, or once again, give us a call. We have a lot of phone numbers out there. You know, but on the website, the contact us button, they can call us and a calls will will come through our call center. Eric Conley, your story is incredible. It's inspiring. It's amazing. The amount of grit that you have is truly incredible to me. So thank you for Absolutely, doing what yeah, you're doing. Great. Tim Trifoletti, thank you so much for sitting in, man. Your questions were great. Hey, you know, you're I a was, natural uh, yeah, my, my buddy here uh, invited me uh, invited me on. So we I had said, a closing. Yeah, why we had not? a closing, had a closing together. together. And He's a mortgage guy. Well, yeah, we're, we're happy to have you involved. And I'm uh, a realtor. Come back plug. anytime. Fun, fun, to, yeah, fun to be here. And it's, yep. and it's great hearing stories like that. My mom growing up was just a ravage alcoholic. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's very interesting. And this is back, I'm 47. So like sure. going into the treatment centers. I remember going in there and it's like, am yeah. I in a psych ward? Am I in a prison? Yeah. What is this? So, you know, when, when you describe how you've gotten that set up, it, it resonates with me. Sure. Whereas when I was a kid, I'd be like, why, why the fuck would I want to stay Absolutely. here? You know, you should so. come visit. You should come walk through. Everybody should come take a tour. Absolutely. Very much so. Go sometime. I mean, yeah, we can hit the strip clubs. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Close by. Yeah. 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 Those are real. It's the racetrack. <laughs> Fra- uh, Fairmont horse, City racetrack. Yeah, horse yeah. track. Yeah. There's lots to do over there in Illinois. Yeah. You know, yeah. I want to go to Granite City sightseeing. People don't realize. <laughs> Babe, uh, if you're listening, Brandon was kidding. I've never been to a strip club. <laughs> I thought they were fake up to this point. Yeah. Uh, well, for Tim Trifoletti, for Eric Conley, for my partner, Brandon McNamee, this has been the Street Smart Mental Health Podcast. To all the veterans out there, thank you for your service. You can come back and see us next time. Love you. Bye. <laughs>